We've been studying through the book of Acts verse by verse, and we've been in the chapters that narrate Paul's second missionary journey. And most recently, last week, we saw Paul run out of town by an angry mob in two different cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And Thessalonica, they received him, you remember, but they, the Jews became jealous. They raised a mob to kick him out of town. So Paul goes to Berea with Silas and Timothy. And then the Jews in Thessalonica found out that he was still in Berea. So then they went down to Berea to cause trouble there. And Paul had to get on a boat and sail down to Athens, which is 100 miles south of Berea. And it's not an easy journey. So that's where Paul is by himself. And what we've seen is that while Paul has always gone to the synagogues first, remember he said that I have been sent first to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles. He had that special commission from the Lord. And what's been interesting as we've gone through this second missionary journey is that as Paul left his home, as he left Israel, Judea, even as he made his way out of what is modern-day Turkey, the culture began to change. No longer were people angry that Rome was overseeing their country or their city. They were proud to be Romans. No longer did they know the Old Testament scriptures. Now they never even heard of the Old Testament scriptures. He's finding cities that don't even have synagogues now. And it's totally different. And that is the centerpiece of this passage here. When Paul arrives in Athens and he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles here. And we ourselves have been called to preach the gospel too. And time was in this country, or so I've been told, I wasn't there, that used to be everybody had a shared foundation. Everybody knew their scripture. Everybody had been to church. Everybody had a shared history more or less. And most people even if they weren't living it, they knew that they needed to be following the Lord. So evangelism was a lot of, hey, you know better, get it together. And there was a big response to that. Well, we've moved past that. That time is, is really not around anymore. And there are places where it's still that way. And there are certain parts of the country or the world that are more like that than others. But we're moving into a time where we don't share a foundation with people like we used to. And so Paul's message that he gives here is going to be instructive for us. And especially because you see that these Athenians, they remind us of ourselves in a lot of ways. The Athenians were smart, they were very thoughtful, and they also were full of themselves. They were smarty pants. And when the gospel came to them, it was strange, because this isn't anything that they've heard before. It wasn't even like Jesus, where Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were shocked at his authority, but he was speaking from the same language as them, you know. And then Paul shows up to Athens, and they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. And the gospel would be offensive to them. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 25, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. There are a lot of people who want to be wise, who want to be smart. They want to gain knowledge. They want to know how to live a good life. We possess the ultimate truth, the ultimate knowledge, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we bring it, because it doesn't scratch that intellectual itch for a lot of people, because it doesn't feel very refined, because a child can understand it, because somebody who doesn't have a bunch of letters after his name can proclaim it to them, then there's a mental block there. And these are the people that Paul is going to preach to. But we're going to see how he did it, and we're going to learn learn a lesson there. And the biggest lesson we can learn is our job is to proclaim the truth and leave the results up to Jesus because it's the Holy Spirit's work to draw people to himself. So let's read now verses 16 through 21. This is what happened before his message. And then we've got Paul's sermon for the bulk of this section. And then at the end, we're going to see how they responded. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, them is Silas and Timothy, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A little bit of editorial from Luke there. So here we are. Paul is in Athens. He'd been hurried out of Berea, and he's alone. And the last thing we saw is he showed up at Athens, and he sent for Silas and Timothy to come as quickly as possible. Whatever plan he had agreed to to go by himself, apparently on that boat ride, he had said, you know what, I, I can't do this by myself. I want them here. And we're going to see next week that they're going to meet up eventually. But for right now, Paul's alone. He's 100 miles away from them, and Paul's got nothing better to do than to kill time in Athens. And it says his spirit was provoked. We've seen that word provoked before. It's the Greek word paroxuno. It's where we get the word paroxysm from. You ever hear that? That somebody was having paroxysms? It means agitation, anger, grief. It means you're being provoked or stirred up to extreme emotion. So Paul's walking around this city and he's getting madder and madder and madder. Now why would that be? Because he's in Athens. He came from Tarsus. He came from Jerusalem. He was a tent maker for a long time. Man, he's in Athens. This is the, the crown jewel of the Greek world. This was the center of philosophy. It was the center of wisdom. It was the center of art and culture. Now, the golden age of Athens had passed. That was a couple hundred years before. But still, it was a prestigious place to be, especially if you have a philosophy to present. We still admire Athens to this day, don't we? We talk about how Athens, oh, it's the foundation of our culture. But for all that we admire that old city, it was a city given over to idolatry. Even the name of the city, Athens, it's a reference to the Greek goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. Minerva was her Roman name. The Parthenon was there. And we think, oh, what a beautiful structure, how wonderful these people were, right up there on the top of the hill. But that was a temple to a false pagan goddess. So they were smart enough to build the building, but they weren't smart enough to realize maybe we shouldn't be sacrificing to a false goddess. And Paul is spending time in the Agora, the marketplace. And in the, the marketplace of Athens, they still have it. You can look it up online if you want. It was called the Stoa Basileos. It was a covered colonnade. So they had the big columns going down and it was covered. And there would be transactions that happened there and there would be business that goes on. But in between every one of those columns was an idol. It was a statue to some god or goddess or other. There was a big bust of the god Hermes that was there. Just kind of ironic because you remember back in Lystra, they thought Paul was Hermes because he talked so much. He said, this could only be the messenger of the gods. And here he is having a look at this every day. And he's getting angry. It made him angry and righteously so. Haven't you ever been grieved when you've seen a city given over to unrighteousness or a family that's been given over to unrighteousness or just a, a person's life that gets ruined by some kind of foolishness that they get wrapped up in? I think of Las Vegas when I think of this here. That is a city given over to debauchery. It's all about drunkenness, gambling, prostitution, lust, and we call it Sin City. But even they, they kind of laugh, say, yeah, I guess we kind of are Sin City, you know? And it's like, no, that's not a good thing. That's a horrible thing. It's enough to make you angry. It's hard to have a pleasant time when I've gone over to Kathmandu or to any other city where there's a bunch of idolatry going on. People want to talk about, oh, the history and the culture of this place. Look at this temple that's been built. I'm like, yeah, this temple where they, they sacrifice animals to these gods and they let the lepers just sit there and rot. And there's all kinds of uncleanness and nasty sexual deviancy going on and they get these people high and then they steal their money. It's like, I'm sorry, I can't enjoy the culture when they're bowing down to this idol and the people are getting the money ripped off from them and people from America with dreadlocks show up and think they're going to find God there. It's hard to enjoy it. It's hard to have a nice Thanksgiving when your niece or nephew shows up and you know they're on drugs and they're slowly watching their life just get ripped apart. 
and you get angry, and they're like, oh, don't judge them. Don't, they don't need that. It's like, I'm not angry at them. I'm angry for them. It's like when Jesus, you remember this? Jesus went into the temple, and he started cleaning house. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read it. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changer sitting there and making a whip of cords. You could meditate on that phrase for a little while, couldn't you? Jesus made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had spent his whole life since the time he was a little kid going to Jerusalem a couple times a year and having to watch this. Watch people get ripped off because they don't have the right coins to use. Oh, your lamb is no good. You have to buy one of ours, and it's going to cost you triple what it normally would cost. And the court of the Gentiles was no longer being used as a place of worship. It was a thoroughfare where you could go back and forth and save some time going up over the mountain. Well, now Jesus is coming in glory. He's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now his hour has come, and now he's going to do something about it. So he makes a whip, and he beat people out of that temple. He was angry, righteously angry, because like this is the Lord's temple, and you're doing this, you're, you're making the, the worship of the Lord something that is a groaning for the people. We get angry when we see sin ravaging a family or a country or a city or whatever it is. But here's the key. We need to let that anger, that righteous anger, provoke us to compassion and love. Because what the enemy will do is you'll get angry for a good cause and the enemy will want to take that and channel it into something sinful. Because when you're angry and you're passionate, it's very easy to get pushed back and forth. Have you noticed? And now you're not angry for this person. You're angry at this person. You're no longer brokenhearted for a city given over to idols. You say, well, forget it. Who needs them? You're like Jonah. Well, yeah, Nineveh's a, Nineveh's a dump. They're awful people. They do terrible things. Lord, you shouldn't save them. And he shows up and he gives the most pathetic message of salvation you've ever heard. And the Lord saves him and Jonah pouts. I didn't, I didn't go through a fish for three days to watch you save all these people. Come on. We don't get angry at people because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against principalities and powers, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. What was Paul's response when he got angry? And Paul had a temper. Read Galatians. Paul had a temper. Paul's response to anger at his city's sin was to preach. He preached in the synagogue, as he always did. He preached in the agora, the public square. I'm sure he stood right by all those idols and is proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. He said, well, I'm going to go get them out of there. I'm going to go save them, not who needs them. And Paul draws the attention of two competing philosophical schools in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that God was unknowable. Gods, the gods, they're probably out there, but you can't know anything about them. So you know what? You're going to die. Just, just have a happy life. Do whatever you can to be happy. The Stoics were pantheists that God is in everything, right? And they believe because everything is God, everything that happens is the will of God. There's no such thing as something bad or something evil. It all just happens. So just, just take it, man. Just accept it as best you can. That's why we, when we say somebody is stoic, somebody who doesn't have the proper emotional response to certain situations, that's what a stoic was. An Epicurean, we call somebody an Epicurean. We're usually calling them a hedonist, somebody who loves pleasure. Well, these people hear Paul. And they accuse him of being a babbler. This is a funny little term here. The word is spermalagos. It means a seed picker. It was an analogy they used, like being a little bird that picks up a seed here and then drops it and then picks up another one and flies over here and picks up this. There was a great definition that one of my commentators gave me. This word for babbler means a person who picks up bits of information and passes them off as if he knows what he's talking about. You ever met somebody like that? I've known some people like that. I went to college. 
Well, that's what they accuse Paul of being, a seed picker, a spermologos, a babbler. You're just talking, talking, and nothing really to say. Well, they bring Paul to the Areopagus. This is a, a compound word in Greek. Pagus means hill, and then at the beginning you have Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. That's why it's called Mars Hill, because Mars was the Roman version of the Greek god Ares. So they bring him up to this hill. This was not the same hill that the Parthenon was on, but they were both about similar heights, and you could see them from each other. And this is where the city council met. Some people have speculated, therefore, that Paul was being arrested and kind of, you need to give an account of yourself. You're going to preach in our city. We want to know what you're preaching. But it doesn't really seem like that's what's going on. It seems more like you've got some weird ideas, and we love weird ideas. We'd love to hear what you have to say. But it is interesting to know that the Areopagus is where the council met. So sometimes when they referred to the Areopagus, they were referring to the council itself. Rather than, you know, if you ever refer to city hall, sometimes you're not necessarily meaning the building. You're meaning the folks that meet there. So Paul is going to have a chance to speak at the Areopagus in Athens. This is like being given the chance to preach the gospel at Harvard or Oxford or some big prestigious university. It's the most high-profile opportunity Paul is going to probably ever get to speak. And Luke tells us that these Athenians, they loved new ideas. They wanted to know everything. They wanted to know philosophy. They wanted to know wisdom. Even if they were going to reject your idea, they at least wanted to know about it so that they could publish a book and make a little money about it. You know, we're very Athenian in our way. We value knowledge. We just use the Latin word science, knowledge. We want to know everything. Even some of the things that we find out, it's like, who does that help? Yeah, but we know. Now we know. We have to know everything. We'll even say, science is the goal. As long as it's for science, as long as we're learning new things, that's how we are. We're like that. I'm not even saying that's necessarily a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. If it drives you to seek the truth, if you can come objectively to the Lord, God is all in favor of people who want to seek him honestly. Because the Lord said, if you seek me honestly, you're going to find me. Problem is when we take the, that mask of objectivity, and we use the mask of just following the evidence where it leads, but in reality, we're trying to take the evidence down a path where we'd like to go. This is what the Athenians were like. They loved new ideas, even if they didn't agree with them. They wanted to hear something new. But Paul has the opportunity to confront them with the gospel. And this is the city of all the cities in the whole world is famous for loving wisdom. And here comes the apostle of God, to tell them the true wisdom of God. And we're going to see how they respond. Verse 22. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 31. This is Paul's whole sermon that he gives here. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." So back in chapter 13, we saw what we called Paul's standard message to the synagogue. Standard message to the Jews. And now you're getting at least most of what was his standard message to the Gentiles. We're going to see in a verse here that they're not going to really let him finish because they're going to laugh him to scorn. But this is what he would preach when he came to the Gentiles. It's very similar to what he said in Acts 14 when he was preaching to the people in Lystra. 
but this is the expanded version, you could say. So he's standing there on the Areopagus, Mars Hill. The Epicureans are there. The Stoics are there. The council is there. He can see the Parthenon, that famous temple on the nearby Acropolis, and he begins. And he begins with a, with a compliment of sorts. He says that they are very religious. This, this could be translated sarcastically as, you're too superstitious. You're, but I think probably what's going on is Paul is trying to affirm as much as he can. I'm going to run through, if you're taking notes, Paul's three steps here and how he presents the gospel to them. And the first thing he does is he affirms as much as he can. This is what we ought to do. These Athenians even had an altar to the unknown God, the agnostotheo. Agnosto is where we get the word for agnostic, right? And he says, whom you worship as unknown, agnuntes, he says, you have an unknown God, somebody that you don't know, but I know him and I'm here to proclaim him to you. It's a great tactic on the Athenians because they prided themselves on knowing everything. They prided themselves on being wise. And Paul's like, well, I saw down there that you've got some things that you don't know. You don't understand. And this, they, would, they would have these altars because what if we forgot a god and he's angry that we forgot? Oh, we have your altar right here, the unknown god, in case any new ones showed up. And Paul says, I've got something that you don't know. I've got wisdom that you don't have. And he's going to reveal it to them. And he begins by very basically to describe the nature of God. The Lord of heaven and earth who made the world and everything that's in it. God as the creator. And he's saying, you think you're doing the gods all these favors, but God made the whole world as if he needed anything from people. The Greeks saw the gods as part of the world. They weren't above the world. They weren't beyond the world. They lived in it. They were on a higher level than people, but they still lived within the cosmos, as they'd call it. And they had all these superstitious ideas about feeding and tending to their gods, you know, where they would bring the sacrifices in. And the sacrifices weren't a gesture of, like it was in Israel, of we want to just give the Lord part of the first fruits of what we've made out of gratefulness. It wasn't that we're trying to atone for sins. It was Zeus is hungry and we've got to feed him. And if we don't feed him, he'll get hangry and he's going to come after us. And, you know, the Lord would rebuke the children of Israel for this because he'd be like, guys, do you think that I need anything? You're, you're ripping the people off. Give them what they have brought. And the Lord basically had the sacrifices in Israel. It wasn't just you bring your bull, you burn it up, and you go home. You bring the bull, you field dress it, you barbecue it, and you take the barbecued bits home, and you burn up the stuff you can't eat. The Lord wanted the children of Israel to be participants with what he was doing. Because the Lord's like, it's not like I'm hungry, you guys. And it's interesting that you see this, that the Israelite, Jewish at the time, Christian, that view of God was so much more sophisticated than the Athenians and the Greeks. And the Athenians, like they, they could build these amazing temples, they could make these sculptures, they had these wise people that wrote books, that's all great. But meanwhile, you've got these people that were slaves in Egypt, and they come out of there, and their idea of God is like light years ahead. That God doesn't need to live in the world. God made the world. That God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. All those things that we know. I am that I am, the Lord said, right? That is so much more sophisticated than the most sophisticated version of God that the world has ever come up with. Do you know why? Because it's true. Because the Lord revealed himself to them. Way before Plato and Socrates and all those people, the Lord had told his name to Moses and revealed himself. Even before that, he said, what are you guys sacrificing to idols for? You made it. You carved it yourself and you're going to bow down to it? Are you crazy? Habakkuk 2.19 says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! Or to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. 1 Kings 8.27 Solomon, when they built the temple, they built the most beautiful golden temple the world had ever seen. But Solomon acknowledges, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Like, hey, we had a beautiful temple too, but we at least understood that God is not contained by this temple. They believed back then that if you destroyed the God's temple, the God had no more power because he had nowhere to live. And you'd think that these high-minded people would have understood that. 
We take it for granted. Well, obviously. I mean, come on. And then there are people that want to go back and kind of rewrite history on behalf of these cultures. And now, they didn't actually believe that. That was, just, that was their philosophy. It was symbolic. It didn't mean anything. People love to do that for Hindus and, and Buddhists as well. They don't really believe in those gods. It just, it's a symbolic thing. I've been there. I promise you it is exactly what you've always been told it is. They're bowing down, offering things up to these little gods, worshiping rats, worshiping mice, worshiping cows, worshiping pigs. And we think, how crazy is that? But this is what everybody had done until the Lord showed up. There really wasn't an atheist culture. That only came when the Lord got rid of all these false pagan gods, and there was really only one alternative. So Satan says, well, they're not going to buy the multiple gods thing anymore. Let's have them believe in no god at all. The philosophies of men, whether it's a formal philosophy like the Stoics and the Epicureans, or whether it's just your co-worker's theories that he's got, whatever our philosophies are, they always want to bring God down to a human level. But we as Christians, we insist on a sensible, profound view of who God is. I enjoy being part of a religion that takes God seriously. I don't have any embarrassing things that I've got to explain to anybody. And this is the first thing that we've got to communicate to people, that God is real and that God is powerful. So Paul began by affirming what he could. He's like, yeah, okay, good. You're seeking God. You're seeking God, and you know that there might be some things you don't understand. That's good. But what's not good is that you have these shallow, false gods. This is the second thing. It's the correction. So you start by affirming as much as you can, but then you've got to correct. You've got to give the truth. He moves to explain how God relates to people. God created man, and he oversees the plan of the nations. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That the Lord has a plan for humanity. Now, the Greeks either believed in the uselessness of man, that we're just the playthings of the gods, and you've just got to keep your head down and hope that nobody notices you, or they elevate man to godlike status. The whole, we've got the divine spark within us. We're all really part God. We just got to have to realize that. Either bringing man down too low or you're bringing him up too high. But once again, Paul comes in with the truth. We are made in God's image, but we're not gods ourselves. God oversees those nations. There's a great little lesson here. He says that he marked the boundaries of the nations and that he raises up and puts them down according to his power and wisdom. That's something that we need to remember because we always have our ideas about what should or should not be done among the nations and where the boundaries ought to be and so on. But the Bible says that's the Lord that handles all that. Psalm 75 verses 6 through 7 says that not from the east, not from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The other mistake would be to look at history and see, now, therefore, let me explain to you why God did all these things. Because then what you want to do is you want to say, and what he's going to do is this because of that. It's a way for us to trust that God is wise enough to handle the nations. Very sketchy for us to definitively state what God's plan is at any given moment. But he said he created man and he gave him two tasks, to fill the world... Go fill out the world, live in it, make something of it. And number two, to seek him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Feel their way. That's phelafao in Greek. It means to grope, like when the power goes out in your house and you're looking for a candle. To grope, to feel a way, feel the way along like you're blind. That's a very important concept for us to know here. Only Israel was given the special revelation of God, the scriptures. But the Lord still holds the other nations responsible to seek him and to find him. In fact, Paul is affirming the Greeks again here. He's quoting from their own poets. The, the second one is a quote from Adaris. The first one, we're not sure if it's a quote or not, but if it is, it's from Epimenides. But in him, we live and move and have our being. He says, hey, you guys say that. And you're right. It's true. And you're right. We are indeed his children, his offspring. He says, yeah, you're right. You're, you're groping. <laughs> okay, it seems that God is sort of like a father to us. He's like, absolutely. You are absolutely right about that. And in him, we live and move and have our being. You're absolutely right about that too. 
You're applying it to the wrong places, but remember, we're affirming what we can and then correcting it and bringing in the truth. The Lord holds the world responsible to seek Him and find Him. We know as well as Paul did that every culture is lost, but certain cultures, it seems, are more lost than others. And not everything a society comes up with is entirely evil. This is important for us to know. Because we get in the habit of turning the guns outward on everything and just wanting to mow it all down. There is plenty to affirm in just about every culture and every society. Solomon himself would include some of the wisdom of the wise men of Egypt in the book of Proverbs. Is he allowed to do that? Yeah, because they were right. They were right. And Solomon in his spirit-inspired wisdom could see, yeah, they were right about that. And it's a very important thing for us to do. He uses what is good about a culture, the fact that they knew that they were God's children and that God was the most important thing. He uses that as a launch pad to talk about the truth. And you can get stuck doing one of two things. Either you affirm everything. We just want to affirm everything about a person or the world or a society to the point, well, what's the difference? Do you have anything to say or are you just saying how nice everything is? Somebody you know is struggling with something. They've got a bad relationship maybe, and you want to help them get out of it. But all you do is show up and you say, I love how loyal you are and how kind you are and that you all seem to make it work and you've had your struggles, but you know what? Hey, yeah, it's, it's, it's really admirable how you've been able to put up with him for so long. You know? You're not helping, but nor would it be helpful to do the second thing and show up and have nothing positive to say. And you say, this is a disaster, and you're a horrible person, and so is he. You need to break up or else. Like, well, who does that help? You've got to come in and be able to separate the wheat from the chaff and be able to say, okay, look, it's really good that you're sweet and you're loyal and you love him very much, but he's a jerk and you can do better. Both of those things are true. And we, need, we do that with families. We do this with cities. We do it with culture. A Christian needs to be careful not to be pushed into one team or other. Because people want us on their team because there's a lot of us. Have you noticed? So they want us. They want to get us on their team. But our job is not to take sides unless it's very clear cut. But to say, no, no, this is true and this is true. That's a cop out. It is not. I'm not part of this world. I'm part of that world up there. So I'm going to look at the truth. I don't need to make a decision. Well, there's been a line drawn in the sand. Yeah, they did that to Jesus a lot too. And he says, I choose C. I'm going this way. That wasn't a choice. That's the choice I'm taking. We affirm what we can, and then we correct it. We bring the truth in. The problem, as Paul was revealing, says, look, you're very wise. You love wisdom. You want to find God. You believe some things that are true. But here's the problem. You've not followed what you know to be true to its logical conclusion. You believe that God is everything, that you're God's children, and that wisdom is important. Great. But chase that down. Follow that trail farther. You're still worshiping idols of silver and gold. You're so smart, but you're doing the same thing that these people over here that have none of that wise culture do. You haven't left behind the foolishness of idolatry yet. They were caught up in lust. They were caught up in selfishness, and they missed it. Maybe it was pride in their culture. Yes, we are very wise people, very smart people, but we also have a, a splendid mythology that goes back thousands of years. We don't want to abandon that. And Paul goes, well, there's your problem. It's your pride, isn't it? Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul says in the book of Romans, God has given people enough to go on. And God is so kind and compassionate that if they will follow what God has given to them, they'll find him. Jesus said, everyone who seeks, finds. But what happens? Paul continues in that passage in Romans to say, they get caught up in their own lusts. If I, if I follow that trail to its logical conclusion, that means I can't do these things anymore. You know what? Maybe this is far enough. He says that professing to be wise, they became fools and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. It's all about me and how smart I am. It's all about me and what I want to do. And this is really what we find, isn't it? Whenever somebody is a big intellectual, smarty pants type, it starts out maybe very cerebral when you're talking, you're having arguments and logic and back and forth and evidence. But then you drill down far enough and it turns out there's a big emotional thing that's standing in the way. It's personal. It's emotional. It's selfish. Maybe they were hurt as a kid or something. And that's the real issue. 
That's what apologetics is meant to do, is to drill down through the bedrock and get to the center. Okay, now we can talk. We're through all this stuff. And this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to cut through all that. He said, let me tell you the truth. So he affirms what is good, and there's plenty good in most cultures and in most people and in most families. Sometimes there's more than others. But he affirms what's good. He corrects it and speaks the truth, step number two. And number three, he makes an appeal. This is important because I think we miss some of this sometimes. And I've been guilty of this. I stand up and I'm going to preach the gospel. And I'm going to talk about what's, what's wrong and what's good and the truth and what Jesus did. But I never really break it down and just give an appeal. Come and be saved. And you know what? There are a lot of people that want to get grumpy at men like Billy Graham or other popular evangelists. Because, well, they don't spend a lot of time laying down that foundation. Yeah, but you know what they do? They double and triple and quadruple down on the appeal to come and be saved. And people get saved. And then what do these other people do? People that are more like me, I'll just be straight up. We want to lay it all down. We want to show you how logically airtight this is. Break it all down and, oh gosh, i got two minutes left. Okay, does anybody want to be saved? You've got to have that appeal. This is the question. Well, what about those cannibals in the deep, dark jungles of Antarctica who've never heard the gospel? How are they going to be saved? Well, Paul answers that question right here in verse 30. This is when he starts to bring it home. The times, I'm going to read these verses again. You should highlight them, underline them, cross-stitch them on a pillow, whatever. These are very important verses for the entirety of Scripture, but especially the book of Acts. Check this out. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because in the past, God was patient. He knew y'all didn't have the scriptures. He knew y'all were so lost that it was, just, it was too hard. But you know what he did? He was patient. He waited. He overlooked those former times. But now things have changed. A new era has come. This does not mean, hear me, that everybody that was not a Jew before Jesus came got to go to heaven. That is not what that says. What it does say is that the Lord is wise enough to know a person's heart. 1 Peter 3 verse 19, it tells us that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison without diving too far into that very interesting passage, what it basically means is those who had died and had gone before Jesus came, Jesus descended into the depths of the earth and proclaimed the gospel to them. So everybody had a chance. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, that if you seek, you will find. The Lord is saying, hey, I'm smart enough to know who goes where. I'm smart enough to know that if the gospel had come to this country, who would have responded to it? And the Lord's able to sort it all out. The Lord is always righteous in his judgments. But now he said, but look, that's over. There's no more excuse. Because now the responsibility is upon people to turn in repentance by faith in Jesus Christ. He said, because Jesus has died and risen from the dead, everything has changed. There are a lot of Christians and even some prominent ones who have said things like, look, as long as you're a good Hindu, as long as you're a good Muslim, the Lord, it's gonna be, it'll be all right. No, sir. He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that's Jesus Christ. It's the responsibility of everyone to respond to Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. Say, well, how are they going to hear? That's where you come in, Christian. It is up to the people of the world to believe, and it is up to the church to make sure they hear. Well, how do I know? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's how we know this is true. Romans 10, 13-15 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yay. But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Well, guess what, Christian? You have been sent. Jesus said in the book of John, it says, As the Father has sent me, so I now send you. It is up to you. We are plan A. And there is no plan B. 
The Lord has sent the church into the whole world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, preach the gospel to every creature. Go into every nook and cranny, every mountain, every valley, every cave, every jungle in the world. Find every person and tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead and you must repent. The world must know the truth. They, had a, they have a little bit of light, like the people in Athens had a little bit of light, but they're still in darkness and it wasn't enough. So Paul says, hey, look, you've got this bit right, but let me tell you the whole thing. Let me turn the lights on for you right now. It is our responsibility. That's a heavy responsibility, isn't it? And it should tell us, okay, maybe my life shouldn't be just about hanging out and having a good time on the weekends. And then work, 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 work. Okay, good weekend. I can relax again. You've got a mission to fulfill, Christian. Keith Green said, this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of lost souls. Ah! You hear that and you go, oh, man. And then you know what you can start to do? You, you can start to inflate your mind and like, well, there's people everywhere. How am I going to proclaim to all of them? And then Satan comes in and says, yeah, you're a failure. It's your fault. They're going to hell. And then now you're all twisted up in your mind. Don't worry about that. You worry about the people that are around you. Who do you know? What about your next door neighbor? What about your street? What about the people you work with? What about the folks in your cubicle clump at work? What about the clients that you travel to and speak to? The people in your class? Can you proclaim the gospel to them? And some of us, the Lord puts a little fire in our belly where you're like, yeah, but there's already people here. The Lord says, yeah, there is. But there's nobody over here. Get on a plane and go. I don't have a degree. Neither did Paul. Paul had the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's all he needed. We've got the light, and the world is in darkness. So Paul did those three things. Let me sum that up one more time. He affirmed what he could. He wanted to stir up the, you could say, the better angels of their nature, right? He wanted to correct what they had wrong and proclaim the complete truth. And number three, he made an appeal. You've got to repent and believe in Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. That's what we do. We affirm, we correct, we make an appeal. But as you will see, verse 32, they, they didn't really let Paul finish what he was going to say. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul didn't even get to finish his message. He said the word resurrection and oh, they started to laugh. They started to mock. The sermon was basically over at this point. I would have loved to have known how Paul would have closed the deal, so to say, if they hadn't started doing this. And the other guy's like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll talk about this another time. It's the classic technique of Satan for somebody who is about to believe. Is, uh, next time, next time, another time. The Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. At the most, some of them believed in reincarnation. If you've ever read the book The Aeneid before, they go down into Hades, into the underworld, and they drink the waters of the river Lethe. They forget everything about their former life, and they're reborn. That's about as close as it got. But most of them thought they were pretty smart and had moved past those old traditions. You die, and that's it. So the idea of resurrection was ridiculous to them. This is the stumbling block of the gospel. Intellectuals have a hard time with the simple message of Jesus' death and resurrection. They want evidence. They want wisdom. They want lofty speech. But guess what? We don't really have that to offer. If you've ever felt bad about your preaching when nobody responded, just remember this story. Paul the Apostle. If we could just get Paul here, all these people would get saved. And it didn't happen here. Paul showed up to Athens and was given a platform to preach to everybody, all the philosophers and the council members, and he's right there. The idols are all around him, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and meh. The text does not say that Paul did anything wrong here. I want to make this clear. Paul's gotten a lot of flack for this, and people want to point out different things that Paul should have said or should have done here. The text does not say that, and this is essentially what he taught in Lystra. And if this was a failed message, why would Luke put the whole thing in there? I don't know. Sometimes you preach the gospel exactly like you're supposed to, and it just falls flat. And it's not your fault. Knowledge, wisdom, being smart, it is such an obstacle to the gospel. 
because it makes us prideful. When you know so much stuff, you resent the idea that you need anything. You're telling me that I need God? It's so antiquated. I don't need that. Or you're like Naaman. You remember Naaman in the Old Testament, the leper from Syria? He showed up to Elisha, and Elisha said, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. He goes, you've got to be kidding me. I came all this way, and I've got rivers back home. I could have washed in those rivers if I wanted. He said, I thought the man of God would come and wave his hand over me, and the, the disease would be cleared. He was expecting a show. He's a soldier. I'm ready to endure anything. You just tell me to go take a bath? And then all of his servants come up after he stormed off in a big huff. They said, hey, man, if it was something hard, you would have done it. Why not just do something easy? It's a stumbling block for people. Knowledge makes us prideful. But you know what? Paul had done his job. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 17. I hope this is an encouraging passage for you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So get this picture in your mind. It says, when we come by and we preach the gospel, it's like you're smelling the aroma of Christ. It's like a smell. He's comparing it to a scent. And he says, to some, it is a fragrance from death to death. And to others, a fragrance from life to life. So some people, for some people, it's wedding bells. For some people, it's funeral bells. It's the same sound, but for one person, it means life. And to the other person, it means death. Because for one person, it becomes the point of repentance. For the other, it's the point of rejection. Who is sufficient for these things, Paul says? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Our job is just to proclaim the gospel, to waft the scent of the gospel around the world. You affirm what you can, you proclaim the truth, you make an appeal, and the rest is up to God. And Paul says, look, some people hear it and they reject it and it's death to them. Some people hear it, they receive it, and it's life to them. But he says, what am I going to do, change it? Am I going to change it so that these people will like it better? He says, I'm not a peddler. I'm not out here hawking God's word. Hey, you know what? I can, I can give you a better deal on that. What do you say we cut off half of the repentance stuff and I bring it back out? I'll give you a discount. I can't do that. I'm a man of sincerity. I'm proclaiming the truth plainly and boldly. And the rest is up to God. And the sad thing is, most people are going to reject the gospel. Jesus said that the road is narrow and it's hard the way that leads to life. And there are few that find it. But there are always a few who are going to respond. Look at this here. He says some people left that scene and followed Paul. I bet you Paul was so brokenhearted when he walked away from this. You've got to be kidding me. I get the moment I've been waiting for and, and there's nothing. But then say, hey, hey, wait up. Hey, we, would you finish? What, tell me what you were saying. I, I want to know. I want to believe. This man Dionysius says that he was an Areopagite. What does that mean? It means he was part of the Areopagus. He was a city councilman. So there's one prominent convert. You've got this woman named Damaris. We don't know anything about her, but uh, a lot of times when Luke gives proper names, it's because the people that read it would have known Damaris. Oh, well, that's where she got saved, you know? And tradition tells us that Dionysius became the first bishop or the first pastor of the church in Athens. Can't be sure, but he's the only one who's named here, so he's the best candidate we have. Oh, Paul failed. No, he didn't. People got saved. People came to Jesus. And he was able to leave a church behind him that would continue to proclaim the message of Jesus. The good news is that we're not sufficient for these things. We can't control how people respond. And we don't alter the message. We just proclaim it and let God do the work. Sometimes I feel like we are under pressure to say just the right thing to get someone saved. Oh, if I had only remembered that memory verse, they would have been saved. Give God some credit, okay? It's the Lord's work. And then sometimes you go out and you give like the most rotten egg of a gospel presentation and people come streaming forward to get saved. What was that all about? I totally blew it. And the Lord's like, because it's not up to you, it's up to me. You're just there to give me an opportunity. That's why we can proclaim the gospel boldly and in faith. Because you know what? It's not your responsibility to make anybody get saved. It's the Lord's work. This is what Paul did. He proclaimed the gospel. And he had a tough cultural nut to crack, didn't he? Try to proclaim the gospel. Try to proclaim something new. Tell the people in Athens that you've been wrong. 
Everything you've ever believed is wrong. Do you know who we are, sir? We are the city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Okay, well, all I've got is the message of Jesus Christ. We have a, we have a tough culture to crack sometimes, too. And it's tough because sometimes you've got somebody that they're totally wide open and sometimes you've got somebody that is totally closed off. This person knows their Bible real well and you tell them about Jesus and they go, you know what, you're right. I, I grew up learning this stuff and I walked away. I got to get back. Then you get somebody over here and you say, I don't know anything about Jesus. I don't know anything about the gospel. I don't know anything about the Bible. The only thing I know about Jesus is that I say his name whenever I hit my thumb with a hammer. And that's tough. It's tough. You've got two different people, but you know what? You do the same thing for both of them. You proclaim the gospel message. And it's aggravating to watch the world going to hell around us, isn't it? Makes you angry. Lord, why, what are we going to do about this? But again, the solution, like Paul, is not to get angry and say, well, this Facebook post is going to change the world right here. They're going to read this and they're going to fall to their knees weeping because of what I had to say. Paul said, I'm not going to do any of that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get out there. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. That's not relevant to the situation. It was the only thing that was going to make any difference. We don't know anything about the political situation in Athens. All we know is that the gospel came, and that was the most significant thing that was happening. We affirm as much as we can. We proclaim the truth about God, using that as a launch pad. Somebody says something like, I, just, I believe God's out there. I just don't know if we can know him. Like, oh, good. You believe God's out there. Let me tell you, he is. And we can know. You're correcting, you're bringing it here, and then now you give the appeal to bring them in. Somebody maybe who doesn't care anything about the Lord, but they're very concerned about justice, or they're very concerned about love. Like, hey, we love justice and we love love. Let me tell you why. Because this is what Jesus did, where justice and love met each other at the cross. And now we can have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. When somebody, even somebody who is so down on themselves, I've talked to a lot of these folks. You want to tell them about Jesus? And like, I, I can't be saved. I am way too far gone. You affirm that. You know what? You're right. You are totally hopeless. Sometimes they go, excuse me, because what they're, they're looking for pity from you is what they wanted. You are totally hopeless. But guess what? Jesus died in your place. Everything that you deserved, Jesus took for you. You use that as your, as your launch pad to talk about Jesus and make an appeal. And the rest is up to Jesus. The rest is up to the Holy Spirit. The epics have changed, as Paul said. We're out of B.C. We're in A.D. now. They can change the name and call it B.C.E. all they want. We mark time from the date of Jesus' birth. Things are different now. Everyone, everywhere, he says, is required to repent, and it's your job to proclaim the message of Jesus. You are his messenger. Paul even refers to this in one place as the foolishness of preaching. That God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to save the world. Really, God, that's your plan? You just want us to go out and tell people? That's exactly right. But what that is, when you preach the gospel to somebody, you are taking salvation out of your hands and putting it in God's. Say, Lord, you go for it. That's why we never compromise, because the Lord has said, here's what I want you to do, and I'll do the rest, I promise. And then sometimes there's growth, and we tend the fields until the Lord comes to reap the harvest.